following contain situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the darkness. We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs. Yeah. Some say we've always been insane. Hey, life's a foolish game. Life's a foolish game. Rivalries aren't cute. When a friend betrays you, someone you love and trust with all your heart, those wounds can cut to the bone. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we profile notable women and the conflicts that help define them. Today, a Hollywood golden girl finds her marriage shattered at the hands of a sultry starlet. It's the story of Debbie Reynolds and Elizabeth Taylor. Debbie Reynolds was born Mary Frances Reynolds on April 1st, 1932 in El Paso, Texas. Her lively, bubbly personality seemed almost too big for the young girl and set her apart as a competitor on the pageant circuit. At 16, when she won the Miss Burbank beauty pageant, she was awarded a crown, a sash, and the attention of a Warner Brothers film scout. A contract with the movie company soon followed. She made her cinematic debut in 1948. Debbie scored more noticeable roles in musicals a couple years later. On screen, she shined as a likable girl next door audiences could easily relate to. Her singing, dancing, and natural comedic timing made her the actress of choice in a variety of projects. Debbie's career only continued to soar when she signed on with MGM and co-starred in iconic films with legends like Red Skelton, Ricardo Montalban, Gene Kelly, and Fred Astaire. And it was there she met a friend she would have for the rest of her life. Sometimes, whether she liked it or not. Elizabeth Taylor. Still teens, both were students at the company's school. Debbie could hardly believe she was attending math and English classes with the legendary child star. Other young actors might have pretended something like this was no big deal. But she was sure those people were either lying or blind. In spite of their differing personalities, the two became close friends. While they may not have been typical teenagers, between them, they were just classmates that had the same after-school job. The two girls shared lunch in the studio canteen, double dates, and other typical off-screen adventures. To Debbie, Liz was the cool girl. She couldn't help but be impressed by her maturity and sophistication. But that's because she was. Elizabeth Rosemont Taylor was born on February 27, 1932, in London. Right away, her parents, American art dealers, were astonished by her natural beauty. She had nearly violet eyes and long, lush eyelashes. They raised their daughter with a love of art and creativity and enrolled Liz in dancing classes when she was three. The child took to it as naturally as breathing, eventually performing at a recital for Princesses Elizabeth and Margaret. Can you imagine her parents' reaction? 
I bet they didn't shut up for weeks. After World War II broke out, the Taylors returned to the United States. Not long after settling into a new life in Los Angeles, friends suggested they take Liz to a screen test. The producers were just as enchanted by the girl as her parents. The Taylors signed her to a contract with Universal Studios, and she made her screen debut in There's One Born Every Minute. Iconic films like Lassie Come Home and The White Cliffs of Dover followed. But her breakout role came in 1944 as a plucky young heroine of National Velvet, a role Taylor spent four months working to get. The film was a huge hit that pulled in more than $4 million, an unheard-of amount of money at the time, and made the 12-year-old actress a star. But it came at a cost. Liz later claimed, quote, I stopped being a child the minute I started working in pictures. The acclaimed film also starred Mickey Rooney, then 24 and already a notorious man whore. Given the nature of filmmaking, it wasn't surprising for the actors to have grown close while on set, but Rooney's wife, Betty Jane, then pregnant with her second child, was completely unprepared when she walked into his dressing room in June of 1946. According to a close friend, Betty Jane discovered Elizabeth in an intimate position with Rooney, performing acts that weren't exactly covered in the script. The revelation triggered a maelstrom, according to Pam McLenathan, a trusted friend who disclosed the affair to authors working on Rooney's biography. Betty Jane didn't hesitate. She secured a cutthroat divorce attorney and obtained a hefty settlement. But it was small consolation. She didn't want to pay out just a faithful, non-predatory husband. Sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. Sadly, this was not the only time Liz was rumored to have been found in a similar position. Some allege Taylor was just 11 years old when she was taught by her close friend and openly gay British actor Roddy McDowell how to satisfy men without sleeping with them. But I have trouble accepting many details about the story, Mainly the idea that an 11-year-old could count any non-related man as a close personal friend, much less close enough to tutor said girl in her own personal TED Talk. And it's cringy to even entertain the notion that a child at her age could be held responsible for any sexual expression like this without any consideration for what the child had been previously subjected to. Plus the fact that all of this was discussed for years off the record with zero mention of either her parents or law enforcement being notified, makes me suspect that this might not have been the entire story. And since most of the sources died without confirming anything, the tale can't really be considered more than lore. In any case, amidst the glare of the spotlight, Liz showed she was more than adept at handling celebrities' tricky terrain. Even more impressive was the fact that, unlike so many child stars before and after her, our girl made a flawless shift to more adult roles. The transition to mature roles can be sticky, particularly for female performers. It's easy for an audience to become familiar with an artist performing in one kind of role. They know what they see and accept it categorically. In many ways, it's a typecast that creeps closer with every passing year. Many times, the only way for women to shed innocent, juvenile roles is to whore out and take on a role so hypersexualized that it shocks the audience into accepting it. It sucks. But as we know now, it wasn't the most predatory part of Hollywood either. 
While Liz was creating her image as a fully matured starlet, Debbie was gaining more fans and more attention on films and overseas, where she entertained American troops during the Korean War. It was there that she first met the man she believed was the love of her life, a hot young crooner named Eddie Fisher. Even then, Eddie was working hard to surpass Rooney's accomplishments in the field of womanizing. Behind the scenes, the teen idol was already known as a ladies' man having seduced a long line of starlets, including Zsa Zsa Gabor, Edith Piaf, and Joan Crawford. In his early 20s, Eddie's crooning tenor voice made him one of the most successful recording artists of the early 1950s. At one point, he had more hits than the Beatles and Elvis combined, with 17 songs on the top 10 charts, including Thinking of You, Lady of Spain, and Oh My Papa. The duo fell madly in love and made no attempt to hide it. Eddie would introduce Debbie on stage as my princess and worship the ground she walked on. Debbie's eyes lit up in Eddie's mere presence, and she found it hard to think of anything else. When Eddie proposed, Debbie was over the moon, but one of her co-stars advised her to keep her feet on the ground. Friend Frank Sinatra warned her against walking down the aisle with the singer, giving her advice she would never forget. Don't marry Eddie, he said not a singer. We're not faithful. It's ridiculous for you to take this on, he said. It was a memorable exchange and one she rejected. She thought Sinatra's caution sounded absolutely ridiculous and told him as much. She loved Eddie. She thought he was adorable. Her mother did too. Guess did she really need to know? But Sinatra knew what he was talking about. As a producer myself, I can attest to that one of the many reasons theatrics require so many scripts, directors, and retakes is the fact that on top of all of this, some performers still can't keep it in their pants. Take the experiences of our girl Liz. When she was 15, she made the movie A Date with Judy with Robert Stack, another co-worker who allegedly became her lover. Then at the age of 16, she was pursued by wealthy wackadoodle Howard Hughes, who offered to pay a million-dollar dowry and set her up with her own film studio if she would marry him. Her parents rejected the offer from the tycoon, 27 years her senior, but Liz reportedly found it funny. MGM may not have been so crazy about it either, but probably not for the reason you would think. Hughes went around the studio when he approached her, a major no-no. In the 1940s, it was customary for studios to arrange dates for their most prominent stars. It was a common marketing ploy to maximize publicity around new releases. If the Hughes hookup had been successful, they would have had to pay for bribes and advertising that otherwise would have been covered in the press for free. Instead, the studio arranged for Liz to date Glenn Davis, the famed Mr. Inside of the Army football champions. While Hughes' romantic gesture was hilarious, Liz was more open to a match with Davis. Eager to gain some independence from her parents and the studio that held her contract, she could see the advantages. And he was only eight years older, so she didn't think it was a big deal. While the relationship didn't really go anywhere, the arrangement garnered plenty of snapshots and articles in the newspapers and gave Liz a hint as to the public scrutiny her love life would see for the rest of her days. She later quipped, Perhaps I should have dated a busboy. At least that wouldn't have made such a spectacle. A year later, she became engaged to handsome army pilot and rich oil heir, Bill Pauley. 
It was called off three months later when rumors began circulating that the bride-to-be had started seeing Howard Hughes on the side. Her mother vehemently denied this, insisting her daughter had never seen the weirdo without her being present. But by then it was too late. He'd begun to get the idea of what it would be like to be the spouse of a movie star, and Polly didn't think it was worth the bother. Friends tell a different story. They say Liz wanted to continue her acting career and wasn't ready to settle down, a decision that ultimately caused the split. She was soon sporting an engagement ring from hotel baron Nikki Hilton, and the couple tied the knot on May 6, 1950. And what the press hailed as the Hollywood social event of the year, the wedding was attended by 600 guests and another 3,000 fans camped along outside the church to witness the entries and exits. Married in a Catholic ceremony in accordance to the groom's faith, the couple celebrated with a lavish reception at the Bel Air Country Club. Expensive? <laughs> no way! MGM footed the entire bill so they could promote the release of her upcoming film, Father of the Bride. This included the honeymoon. Although in hindsight, it may have been a bit too much. According to Liz, Hilton began drinking on their wedding night and seldom stopped. After the honeymoon, she went home to her mother and filed for divorce, citing Hilton's alcoholism, gambling, and abusive behavior as the cause. In 1952, she walked down the aisle again, this time to marry actor Michael Wilding. Old enough to be her father, many speculated Liz was looking for a safe and stable partner, the opposite of Hilton. If she was, she found it. But the dramatic age difference left them little in common except their two sons. Where her star was continuing to rise, Wildings had begun to slump. While on location filming Giant in 1956, tabloids reported Wilding invited a pair of strippers to their home for some role-playing of his own. The story soon made its way to the pages of Confidential Magazine. The couple divorced in 1957 in what could only be described as a textbook example of what Old Blue Eyes was trying to tell our girl Debbie. But still, Debbie was in love, and like any other young woman in the situation, was sure of two things. She was special, and Eddie would never do that to her. Well, it sounded good, right? So blowing off Frank and his best intentions, she took the plunge, marrying Eddie on September 26, 1955. The union was celebrated by fans and the media alike. Smiling pictures of America's sweethearts graced the front of magazines across the country as the public imagined their charmed life as the perfect Hollywood couple. Privately, perfect was the last thing the union was. Eddie reminded her of it constantly. He kept telling her he didn't think she was funny. She wasn't a good cook. She didn't make good gefilte fish or good chopped liver. She wasn't good in bed either. He made her feel as if he got the wrong end of the stick, as if she somehow deceived him. After all, she practically hit the lottery when she married the famous, handsome, and multi-talented Eddie Fisher. What did he get? Just a girl next door with a little turned-up nose. It took her a while to realize that it was she who'd been deceived. All he really wanted was someone to play the part of a happy wife, a pretty girl, someone who could give him pretty children. And he meant it, too. The children, he said, better have your nose. While Eddie's behavior wasn't exactly what she expected, Debbie was sure things would work themselves out and turned her attention to the only real outlet that had never let her down. She continued to work starring in the movie Tammy and the Bachelor, while earning commercial success for its title song as well. 
By 1957, the song hit the top of the charts and the film was well on its way. Still, neither were celebrated in the Fisher household. Eddie was the one that was supposed to have the hit singles. And she became a mother. Daughter Carrie was born and soon after son Todd. But not even giving birth to his baby seemed to satisfy him. While there was no mention of Eddie being disappointed by either of their noses, Debbie said that by the time Carrie was six months old, Eddie was never home. When he was, he seemed to ignore her. But she pushed on, figuring that every marriage has its difficulties and perhaps even telling herself to be patient that Eddie just needed time to adjust. Sure, there were some bumps in the road, but with time they could make it work. Just like their friends Liz and Todd. By the time she was 25, Liz had two failed marriages and was in no doubt worried about a future in a convent. All that changed when she met Mike Todd. The film and stage super producer swept her off her feet, and they were married two days after her second divorce was final. I mean, why wait? 23 years her senior, Liz felt like she finally found the love of her life. She later wrote, He had a joy, a relish about being alive, a vitality that was so contagious. He was a fabulous con artist, could con the gold right out of your teeth, but was terribly, gregaciously generous. The rest of Liz's camp loved him, too. During their ceremony, Eddie stood in as Todd's best man, and Debbie was Liz's matron of honor. The couples were inseparable, frequently photographed together at premieres and hot spots around Tinseltown. They were so close, Debbie and Eddie named their son after him. But nearly four weeks after the birth of his namesake, tragedy struck. Todd was killed when the private plane he was traveling aboard, dubbed the Lucky Liz, crashed in New Mexico. Elizabeth was devastated. Her knight, her savior, her stability were once again ripped away from her. It was all she could do to breathe. When Debbie and Eddie learned the news, the couple stepped in to support their friend. Debbie volunteered to look after the kids, and Eddie went to look after Liz. At the time, Debbie didn't think another thing of it. After all, they were friends. Friends look out for each other. She wrote, he went with my blessing. The four of us were so close, I was sure he could comfort her. She was even glad Eddie took time away from his busy schedule to show her compassion. He had always been the greatest when it came to supporting her, so she was encouraged by what she saw as Eddie's extra effort to support Liz, selflessly trying to fill a terrible void for their friend. He filled the void all right. What started as a wellness check in time turned to a full-blown affair. Debbie remained in the dark about their growing romantic relationship, ignoring all the signs that in hindsight had been right in front of her the whole time. The little hints published in newspapers, the whispers of friends at parties and events, until one night when he was away working, she grew lonely and decided to call a friend she knew would understand, her buddy Liz. Aware she was staying in New York, Debbie placed a call to her hotel room. Only Elizabeth didn't answer the phone. Eddie did. Debbie was stunned. Was this really happening? Still processing the situation, she heard Liz's voice in the background asking who was calling. They were still in bed together. In seconds, everything was over. The facade of her marriage, her faith, her trust. 
and her friendship. Debbie lost it. She yelled at him, Roll over, darling, and let me speak to Elizabeth. Still taking in the surreal moment, new realities started to flood her mind. Ugly realities. Suddenly, many previously unrelated things started clicking into place. Things like Eddie's time away, his supposed concern for Liz, the rumors, the whispers, the unescapable knowledge that almost everyone saw it but her. She recalled going to a dinner party, just one of countless others she was forced to attend alone. She remembered hearing people whisper, does she know? She wondered what they were whispering about at the time, but no one would tell her. They just dodged the question and changed the subject. But now she knew. She was a mockery, the butt of the jokes. Instead of chastising herself for being the last one to know, Debbie cut herself some slack. She had been duped for a long time, but that wasn't her fault. She didn't do anything wrong or cause the situation to happen. All she could do was face it. All she could do was hang up the phone and let him come home to discuss it. Eddie did rush home. Not to apologize, but to tell her their marriage was over. A month after Todd's death, he looked her in the eye and said, I'm sorry. Elizabeth and I are in love, and I want a divorce. It was the last thing she expected to hear. Debbie barely had time to wrap her mind around it before she had to get up and make the kids breakfast. How could this be, she wondered. How could he do this to her? Still adjusting to news of his infidelity, she didn't anticipate him wanting to leave either. His words left her shattered. She didn't want their marriage to end. She was deeply religious and didn't believe in divorce. She remembered the way things were with Eddie at the beginning of their relationship. She was his princess. Their life together was supposed to be a fairy tale. And it's not like the pair's feelings were true love. Debbie might have been in denial about a lot of things, but even she could see that. She warned her soon-to-be ex, if you marry her, she'll throw you out within 18 months. In response, he said nothing just picked up some of his things and hurried off to be with his lover. Once revealed, the love triangle became one of the biggest scandals to rock Tinseltown. The gossip magazines had a field day pondering how Liz stole Eddie away. And the answer was just as degrading as it was obvious. He ran off with the more beautiful woman. Do they really have to analyze that too? Debbie felt the weight of a thousand eyes judging her for the same critiques Eddie had lambasted her for during their marriage. For a thousand of her faults and a thousand and one invented ones. For not being good enough, pretty enough to keep her man. It felt nauseating. At the height of the attention, gossip columnist Hedda Hopper cornered Liz. Her response? What of it? Quote, <laughs> Eddie is not in love with Debbie and never has been. You can't break up a happy marriage. Debbie and Eddie's never has been. What do you expect me to do? Sleep alone? Wow. All the while, Eddie continued to needle Debbie, demanding a divorce. Each time, she refused. She asked him, almost pleading at times. Did he really want to give up their family? 
Couldn't they make things work? His answer was no. In the end, Debbie knew she had no choice. They laid guilt on me that I was keeping them and true love apart, she recalled. So I finally let Eddie off the hook. I told him to go. Almost harder than telling the children was responding to the press. She finally decided upon the statement, The position in which I am placed makes it necessary for me to give my consent. But privately, she knew it was all for show. They would have gotten married anyway. And it's not like it helped. The only thing that topped coverage of the affair was news of the divorce. Reporters clamored to cover the fallout more than the work each of them continued to generate. Much to Debbie's anguish, painful headlines started crowding out mainstream news. Will Liz break Eddie's heart too? What they're saying about Liz and Eddie now? Sensational scoop. Liz and Debbie's private talks about Eddie. It was a tabloid feeding frenzy the likes of which had never been seen. As much as they ingested every morsel of the affair, the world was just as stunned by news of Hollywood's golden couple divorcing and predictably reduced each participant to a role in a worn-out drama. Todd Fisher later wrote that his father and Elizabeth were vilified. Eddie was declared a philandering, opportunistic loser, and Elizabeth was labeled a bad girl, home-wrecking slut, he said. Debbie, the good girl, innocent, the unsuspecting victim and single mom, was globally embraced with love and sympathy. That love and sympathy was little consolation to Debbie. What she wouldn't give to have things back the way they used to be. Or the way she thought they used to be. But now she had bigger things to worry about. Now that he was running around with Liz, Eddie abandoned his responsibilities to their children as well. Just toddlers at the time, he left Debbie with everything. To tuck them in at night, answer all their questions about why daddy was gone and why he wouldn't be back. He left her holding the bag when it came to their eventual anger and tears. He didn't even pay child support. So as public interest in their situation shifted again with announcements of Liz and Eddie's upcoming nuptials, Debbie threw herself back into work. She had nothing more to say to her childhood friend. Eddie and Liz married the day the divorce was final in a ceremony witnessed by more reporters than guests. To the public, Debbie remained quiet, content to let the newlyweds do most of the talking. In time, she was better able to articulate her feelings. I never felt bitter about Elizabeth, she said. A man doesn't leave a woman for another woman unless he wants to go. And there was an unexpected advantage. The public ordeal made Debbie and Liz even more recognizable, if that could even be possible by then, and served to make them even bigger box office draws. The women even started commanding higher salaries per picture. But the scandal backfired on Eddie. His gigs featured morality clauses, and the scandal ruined his career. He lost his recording contract. His self-titled TV series was canceled. Soon, he had to resort to touring nightclubs and lounges to make ends meet, just as he did in the early days. Still, it's not like it was his fault. It was Debbie's. He accused Debbie of orchestrating a public lynching in the press to ruin him and turn his fans against him. Eddie once sent his son a telegram, which read in part that he and Liz wished him a happy birthday. The only thing was, Todd had just turned two. Why would anybody send a telegram to a two-year-old, Todd later mused. 
The answer, of course, was to mess with his mom. Todd later recalled his father was prone to behavior like that. Liz probably didn't know a thing. Still, through it all, Debbie handled the cruel slams with grace. And let's face it, she had to. Friends commented on her bravery, never allowing herself to feel defeated or broken. That was the Miss Texas and Debbie, they said. She had tenacity. But her children still needed a father. So when shoe mogul Harry Carl came calling, she answered. He was older, a millionaire, and reminded her a lot of her father. The couple married in 1960. With his own career in shambles, Eddie changed tactics and decided to focus on furthering Elizabeth's instead. Announcing he had decided to put his career on hold, he followed her to locations, setting himself up in villas and hotels as her house husband and consultant. He started smoking big cigars, and he started inserting himself into as many of her projects as he could, appearing in Butterfield 8, where his performance barely garnered a yawn. Insiders noted it was almost like he was channeling his inner Mike Todd. They found it a little creepy. But Elizabeth was immune from all that. Her performance in Butterfield 8 won her an Oscar for Best Actress, and the demand for her work kept coming. While on the set of Suddenly Last Summer, she was offered the title role in Cleopatra. Exhausted, female, and therefore hesitant to say no, she jokingly said she'd take on the project for a million dollars. When 20th Century Fox agreed, she became the highest paid performer in history. Good for her. In preparation for shooting, the couple traveled to Rome, where Eddie set up a comfortable place to hang out and pretend to do something, and Liz went to the set to get acquainted with her co-stars, namely the actor playing Mark Antony, Richard Burton. Elizabeth said the attraction between the two of them was there from the start, even if she did find Richard's pickup lines a little corny. Wales's great lover, wit, and intellectual sauntered over to her and said, has anyone ever told you that you're a very pretty girl? Liz found herself falling madly in love. Sensing more than a little chemistry, the press jumped on the story. But naturally, the couple denied anything was amiss. For his part, Eddie was clueless too. He even held a press conference where he told reporters stories of Elizabeth's infidelity were preposterous, ridiculous, and absolutely false. After all, they were in love. They were married, right? But seeing his statements blazoned all over newspapers and magazines did little to quell his growing insecurities. One night he asked her, is something going on between you and Burton? She whispered, yes. We'll pick this up next week. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. 
We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening.